Thank you for listening to the iCritical Care Podcasts with your new host, Dr. Jeffrey Guy, MD, MSC, MMHC. For copyright and disclosure information, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Today we'll be speaking with Brian Cotton, MD, MPH, who is today to discuss damage control resuscitation, a topic he presented at the 41st Critical Care Congress. Dr. Cotton, who is an associate professor of surgery at the University of Texas Health Sciences Center in Houston, Texas. Additionally, he's the director of the Surgical Critical Care, Trauma Surgery, and Acute Care Surgery Fellowships, and he's authored over 40 articles just on the topic of hemostasis and transfusion. Dr. Cotton, thanks for being here. My pleasure, Jeff. So the question that I think really needs to be defined further is what is this concept of damage control resuscitation? resuscitation is getting back to the basics of combat casualty care and resuscitation as it began back in World War II. And there are three basic tenets of this. First is delivering a resuscitation that is similar to what the patient's bleeding, uh, that namely plasma and red cells in a, in, a, in a ratio higher than either you or I were taught in residency and in fellowship and even early into our practice. The second component is permissive hypotension, not necessarily allowing someone to dwindle down in code in front of you, but to keep their blood pressure enough to where they're mentating, where they've got a palpable pulse, and not really drive the blood pressure up or at least seek out an artificial blood pressure that might make us feel better when we're documenting in the trauma bay or documenting in the helicopter what their, what their vital signs are. And then the third, and many people, such as Marty Shriver and, and others, would actually argue is the most important, is the limiting of crystalloid-based resuscitation, at least in that acute phase. And bringing all three of those tenets together is what we have described as damage curl resuscitation. So it's, it's, it's not just one thing. It's, you're, you're basically changing your entire paradigm of how we transfuse somebody who's bleeding from what we learned in, in medical school and residency. Correct. Uh, a lot of people will, will especially the people that really, uh, that they're, uh, it's overwhelming in the form of a randomized controlled trial, uh, at least as of right now. There is one getting ready to start this summer, multi-center trial, that will hopefully address this. But right now, we don't really have a multi-center trial to guide it. So right now, you have two camps. You have a one-to-one camp, and you have a not one-to-one camp. What is interesting is in the last four or five years, and we've actually kind of seen this both in our dealings with the FDA and the NIH and, and developing this, this multi-center randomized trial, is that, you know, four or five years ago, the comfort level would have been a, about comparing one-to-one with one-to-four. Then uh, it became closer to one-to-three as the acceptable comparator group. And now it's closer to one-to-one is the two groups to really compare to. And if people really get hung up on the absolute ratio, which is the most optimal, I know Gene Moore at, uh, at Denver feels it's one to two. Uh, we feel it's one to one, but we don't, we're not sure, which is, again. The... Just to further define this for our listeners who may not be trauma surgeons or surgical intensivists, so you would give, say, four units of blood followed by four units of plasma, or would you give one unit of blood followed by one unit of plasma followed by your second unit of blood followed by your second unit of plasma? You know, that's a great, great question, and that's actually been brought up 
multiple times in developing this protocol and presenting data at meetings because even prospective trials, observational trials, have not really answered that question because a lot of people are giving it, like you said, four of red and then four of FFP or four plasma, then maybe platelets a bit later. In designing our trial, what we're trying to do is do one unit of red, one unit of plasma, or two units of red, then that first unit of plasma. And in clinical practice, that's what we're doing right now in Houston. We have four units of red cells and four units of fog plasma within 15 feet of our trauma rooms. We, When we grab that, the nurse spikes a bag of each on our Belmont Rapid Infuser and puts them side by side. And so they're getting one red bag and one yellow bag of immediately upon, upon request for blood products. In fact, it's become so ingrained, at least at our center, that if we ask to hang blood, it's not even a discussion of which one to hang first. They come up and the nurses will hang one of each simultaneously. We'll actually have to probably, you know, call them off and beat them off with a stick to get them to actually hang a certain sequence uh, of products, uh, any other than one-to-one from the, from the get-go. And you mentioned it, but what, what is the role of platelets now? Are we giving platelets one-to-one as well, or are we grouping that after six or eight units of blood like we used to? Right. Well, you know, it's a matter of availability. And so at least at our center, uh, platelets go in after several units of plasma and several units of red cells. We try to keep it a one-to-one ratio, but it's usually coming on as a sixth unit of each of the reds and plasma are going in, the platelets are showing up. And that's just a geographic uh, distinction where we have four units of red and four units of plasma in our trauma bay. Logistics and everything else aside, we do not have platelets in our trial day. If we had it on the, uh, you know, the, the, the turnstile machine down in the, in the trauma bay rather than in the, in the actual blood bank, and we had those platelets ready to grab off in, uh, the, uh, the agitator and, and hang them, we'd probably start with those earlier in the resuscitative process. But it really gets down, down to more of a, uh, a availability bias. And again, that's really what kind of permeates the, the literature as it stands right now. Uh, I think even the groups that, I don't want to say condemn, but that are not necessarily rah-rah on the one-to-one paradigm are a lot closer to that than probably they are are at least proposing. And when you go down into their clinical practice, and the reason I know that is because we are working with a lot of those centers in developing this, you know, 12-center North American trial, we're seeing that they're getting a lot closer to one-to-one than than is being advocated nationally. What they're finding, though, in their studies is because of availability bias. Uh, Their red cells are in their trauma bay, but their plasma and platelets are in their blood bank. Because of that, they're unable to deliver it in a one-to-one fashion, or even if they do, it's like you said earlier, it's four to five units of red followed by four or five units of plasma, then the platelets play catch-up. So I guess, you know, some people might ask, you know, you mentioned that this is a paradigm that's been adopted from the military by providing combat casualty care. But in Main Street, USA, I mean, we're not talking about somebody who may have had a several-hour extrication to a combat support hospital. Is this relevant to civilian practice? No, that's a good question. Um, you know, we got a lot of these paradigms from military experience. But what we were seeing, especially with these last two conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq, a lot of people being deployed over there that were civilian trauma surgeons that were in the reserves, 
that are coming back to their centers, employing these type strategies of, again, all three components, and seeing improved outcomes. And then they study those, present those at meetings, and it starts to play, you know, it plays, play, plays to the rest of the, uh, the country, and it becomes a popular uh, shift in the way that we resuscitate. And at least clinically, I would say that we probably have more data currently that it works in civilian practice than data, data-driven uh, experience in the military. Now, we have a lot of, of anecdotal experience and a lot of very seasoned combat surgeons that are coming back and believe in it and have witnessed the change when people like John Holcomb and, and others made these switches in the joint theater and watched the outcomes change in front of their eyes. But when it gets down to real hardcore interrupted time series analysis type assessments, it really is the civilian data probably that, uh, that is more, at least uh, has a lot more volume to it and a lot more centers to contribute to this, uh, to this argument. Now, what would your comment be to say somebody who's in a medical ICU who's managing a patient who has a source of GI blood loss or esophageal varices? Would you still want to practice that same paradigm? It's a good comment, Jeff. The, the medical ICU patient, the surgical ICU patient that's not necessarily trauma, I don't know that we have the exact answer. However, when people have looked at it and come away with the conclusion that the higher ratios are not good for these medical ICU patients, such as this GI bleeder, or they're not necessarily good for, let's say, the liver transplant patient that's bleeding or that goes south on you, I don't know that they can make that comment definitively because those same studies are suffering from those same biases that the trauma studies have suffered, many of them looking at it saying, oh, well, yeah, these one-to-one ratios are, are not good. Look at the outcomes of these patients. It gets down to a survival bias where, you know, they've got to live long enough to get these one-to-one ratios, and maybe the people that come out are necessarily going to do as well. At the same time, you've got organ failure rates that may or may not be higher with these higher product ratios. But when it all comes down to if they can't deliver and if these ratios of plasma and red cells are not immediately available, it may not be necessarily the products that, are, that need to be implicated in this. It may be a delay in intervention. Some of the, Most of these studies that are out there have not really nailed it down, I don't think, in the medical or in the surgical units that one-to-one is the answer or not the answer. I would say that, at least in the experience of trauma, it looks like that is the answer to a higher ratio, whether that's one-to-one or one-to-two, somewhere in the middle there. Uh, but definitely higher ratio product transfusion strategies are definitely way to go, I believe, in trauma. And in obstetrical hemorrhage, there's been some mounting evidence, as well as in the, you know, the occasional uh, vascular catastrophe, the thoracal abdominal repairs or the ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysms. Uh, hopefully soon enough we'll have some more experience in the medical ICU as part of these resuscitation paradigms per, you know, uh, go and, and, and are transferred over into these medical units. And while these same trauma surgeons and surgical intensivists begin caring for these GI bleeders, I can tell you at least in our center they would pretty much be resuscitated in the same paradigm uh, if they if they arrived to us, uh, maybe not with all three uh, tenants, but definitely with the less crystalloid and more blood product and blood component utilization early on, especially if that's what they're bleeding. 
Now, you mentioned that a second arm of this is the concept of permissive hypotension, which sounds like a euphemism like we used to have permissive hypercapnia that we couldn't ventilate the patient. So we're going to let patients sit hypotensive now and not do a full resuscitation, or the intent of the permissive hypotension is to what? Well, the permissive hypotension component is, I think, twofold. One, by by aiming for lower blood pressures, by aiming for lower, again, artificial blood pressures that we don't know exactly what is the definition of true of hypotension. Is it 90? Is it 80? Is it which is data I would suggest in the uh, in a young military patient? It's matter of more of getting perfusion. Is there adequate perfusion regardless of what the systolic or the mean arterial pressure states. So in other words, do they have a palpable distal pulse, radial or dorsalis pedis, and are they mentating enough? So those two surrogates are giving us enough perfusion of the patient where the actual measured cuff or uh, automated blood pressure is of less significance or less importance to us in our resuscitative strategy. Yeah, so basically, if if you walk up to somebody and they have a palpable radial pulse, you're assuming that their systolic blood pressure is greater than 90, and it's probably going to be adequate to, you know, they don't need to be continue resuscitated. So as we increase the patient's systolic blood pressure, we would anticipate that we would basically increase the rate of blood loss. Correct, and this goes back to whole, the whole, again, like you just said, popping the clot uh, concerns. Uh, and again, you, you get back even into... And this is mostly advocated for the pre-hospital setting uh, and until we get to a point where we have ability to get surgical control in these patients. But if you look at Rick Dutton's data at the shock trauma back in Journal of Trauma 2002, they noted that even going into the emergency department and all the way to the operating theater with a lower systolic, what they did was a systolic of 70 uh, randomized versus a stalker greater than 100 randomized. And what they found is while there was no survival difference, that was kind of the, the point. There was no survival difference, even when they were allowed to have a lower systolic blood pressure. What I think was interesting and would have been more interesting had it really uh, been able to show this and really capture this data was what was the actual blood loss? What was the actual time to hemostasis in these patients? Was it actually quicker in those patients that didn't have this? You know, more recently, uh, our colleague next door at Baylor, Ben Top, Ken Maddox and, and Matt Carrick, Matt Wall, and those guys are doing a study looking just at this, but extending it not just from the arrival at the door, but all the way through the operating theater. So once they hit the OR doors, they're randomizing them. And, again, you know that you know, Ben Tobb and, and the greater Houston fire rescue squads have long advocated this uh, permissive hypotension. When the, in the field, well, they're actually bringing it not only from the field to the ER, but all the way to the operating theater where they're actually randomizing patients to a map of 50 or a map of 65 and then following them through. Their, their recent data, just kind of, the, kind of their preliminary pilot stuff, uh, was presented at East about, it, uh, I think, a year ago this last January, and showing some pretty interesting findings about less blood loss, less coagulopathy. Again, early results, they don't have an exact um, you know, outcome difference yet, but it's going to be interesting to see what they do find. And are the outcomes similar for both penetrating and blunt trauma? So that's, you know, that's another interesting point, and I, I, I remember actually battling that numerous times right out of fellowship with some of my colleagues, and that, oh, this is a blunt patient, this is different. Well, the penetrating and the 
you know, data definitely was overwhelming coming out of Houston back in the early 90s, New England Journal article, and Bickle and those guys, looking at it and suggesting that impenetrating patients, permissive hypertension, and low volume resuscitation was associated, actually resulted in improved outcomes, and that was a randomized trial. Since then, though, this, this new one from Baylor Next Door is actually in both blunt and penetrating. And I'll think that our center as well as their centers in a non-research setting, a patient comes in that's blunt, a patient comes in that's penetrating, our resuscitation strategy is identical in these patients regardless of their mechanism. We are going for permissive hypotension. Do they have a palpable pulse? Are they perfusing? Are they maintaining? And we're managing them the exact same way. So with this and, and the change in the, the transfusion strategy of these patients, are fluids out? Are they are they good? Should we use them in moderation? If so, well, you, yeah, that's a great question. You know, the the majority of patients that come in that are trauma don't need blood. The overwhelming majority don't get any blood, and we know that. What is interesting, though, is that the ones who get blood have a dramatic increase in mortality. And, and that's not to say that the blood is killing these patients. What's the point is these patients are sicker. They're apples and oranges. When we're look, dealing with the apples, again, those that are bleeding, they need blood product transfusion. They don't need crystalline. When we're talking about the other majority of patients, the overwhelming majority of trauma patients, they need whatever they need to keep them perfused. And not, you know, majority of time, it is a low-volume resuscitation utilizing crystalloid until they're able to actually take oral intake. These patients, however, don't need a misinterpretation of ATLS, which, again, ATLS is talking about up to two liters of crystalloid challenges in patients that are hypotensive. Those are the scenarios they give you when you're in your moulage scenario of, of ATLS. They're not suggesting that the patient comes in with an isolated femur for fracture, that the heart and the weight, that a normal blood pressure, you think, needs a challenge of two or three liters of crystalloid. And again, I think it's helped us reestablish the role of crystalloid in the, in the general trial patient. A patient comes in like I just described with the isolated injury and normal vital sign parameters, they're going to get crystalloid fusion at a maintenance rate of anywhere from 70 to 100 an hour. And then it's going to be saline locked once we feel that there's no overwhelming shock or that the patient's not continuing to continue to be NPO and need some maintenance fluid. But in the general population, when they come in, we're going to start with a saline lock status. We don't actually start with fluid challenges. When we are recognizing patients in shock, they're going directly to and plasma and platelets. When we recognize they're not in shock, they're getting saline locked or they're getting a a low-maintenance-level fluids to carry them through their IV contrast exposures and their NPO status until they've been completely worked up. But I think it's taken definitely a back seat in, in, the, in the whole resuscitation, and that's actually extending out into our pre-hospital scenarios as well where our life flight, which, again, just is, is, is uh, almost overwhelming and, and a very pleasant sort of way for me now, having been in other places, I'll show up to the trauma bay and the helicopter service is dropping them off, and I'm asking where their IV access is, how much fluid they got, and they're responding they've got two large bore IVs, there's no central access, and they've got two or three of fluid. So and it's just a beautiful thing. <laughs> so Aristotle said all things in moderation, and from what I'm hearing is Brian Cotton is saying 
that there's a role for aggressive transfusion practices and there's a role for moderation of crystalloids that, you know, they both have their role in the particular patient, but, you know, don't go crazy on one side or the other. Absolutely. In fact, that's one thing we've actually from dealing with these infusers. So these rapid, we got rid of our level one transfusers because they, there was not really a way to get them in slower. And when we're giving even these one-to-one resuscitations of people that are, that are in shock and crashing, we're not running them, you know, knobs right, as one of my residents used to say. You know, we're not running them full bore on these Belmont infusers. We're setting them at the, almost the lowest rate that they'll go in, which is in that 70 to 80 mLs per minute range. Uh, of, of their blood products. We're not putting them in at four or 500 mLs per minute. So again, I think even the, the blood products we're giving don't necessarily need to be slammed into these people that are coming in in shock. We need to have a little more gentle progression because I can only imagine that even, even the good stuff that I consider, again, almost a whole blood-based resuscitation, if I'm slamming in them in them at too rapid a rate, I'm still going to pop the clot. I'm still going to have some reperfusion issues. And a little more gentle, a little more moderated resuscitation platform ought to be in order. So what is the state of the science, and I guess what is the state of the art in regards to recombinant factor 7? So factor 7, I'll tell you the the place that we utilize factor 7 is in our elderly patients that are coming in with a profound coagulopathy that we think giving them products such as plasma to reverse that coagulopathy are going to overwhelm them from a cardiac standpoint. So when a patient comes in, INR 6, they're bleeding, they're on known Coumadin patient, and they need to be reversed quickly, we're going for factor 7A. We're not giving them, you know, liters of plasma, which, again, would work, but would take quite a while to do so. So that's really the place that we've seen it. Um, any other time, it's been part of, kind of a bailout strategy, perhaps in the operating theater or even into the ICU. But I will tell you that as we, and again, this started, and I noticed this at the end of my days at Vanderbilt and then through my days here at UT, when we got rid of the large volume resuscitation of crystalloids, when we just started to give more product, not necessarily an absolute one-to-one, but more product with our red cells, we didn't see as much of a coagulopathy. In fact, not just the factor seven, but even our cryoprecipitate use has gone down as we've gotten control of the coagulation cascade early on in our resuscitation. So I have to tell you, 7A is, um, again, I think it's a good drug. I think a lot of their you know, earlier studies were probably showing that in the field of, of trauma at the time with a lot of crystalloid, uh, some red cells, and very little plasma and platelets, 7A was coming to save the day. But as we have changed our resuscitation paradigm, and again, I think that might have caught up with the factual 7A studies uh, towards the end, we were actually not seeing a real big difference. It didn't have as much of a role to play in that evolving field of damage control resuscitation. To recap on that, because that's a reasonably provocative topic among surgeons and anesthesiologists, it sounds like you're using on a very selective subset of patients. I mean, Absolutely. Again, it's, if, uh, if we're, you know, we've got a patient on the field, you know, some of our, our thromboastography or conventional coagulation testing is really showing that we're not making a headway, but everything else has been kind of, we've dotted all the I's, crossed the T's, 
and we're given a good resuscitation. We don't have a silk deficiency in the operative field, <laughs> and we try and, and struggling to figure out where the heck we're bleeding from from the coagulation process. That's when 7A might come in, but majority of the time it is pretty much relegated to our facility for the ER-based resuscitation of the Coumadin patient with an INR who's elderly, and we don't want to give them leaders of plasma to rescue them. Now, you said a word. I'm not going to let it get by me. You said thromboelastogram. <laughs> Correct. So it's that's uh, thromboelastography or thromboelastometry, depending on which side of the ocean you're on. It's a old process, an old assessment of the coagulation cascade. It was, came about in the late 40s, and they played around with it a little bit in Vietnam and Korea, and I really didn't know much about it until I actually moved to Houston in 2009. What a lot of people probably didn't know about it, even until about that time frame, the people that really are responsible probably for the resurgence of this technology are the anesthesiologists and the trauma surgeons and the emergency physicians, people like that, that were deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan as went over there and came back and were like, wait a second, we had this technology over there called TAG, or again in the British setting or the, in the European setting, Rotem, and it was really fantastic, and it really helped guide us in our resuscitations. Why the heck don't I have it here? I'm at the Cleveland Clinic. I'm at Vanderbilt. I'm at, you know, shock trauma. Where the heck is the tech machine? And it was really these guys and girls that really drove home this technology and what this technology does utilizes a cuvette and a wire and this cuvette is a small cup that holds about 0.3 mls of blood whole blood and to that is added calcium chloride as well as activators whether that be kaolin or the addition of tissue factor as well and it kickstarts clotting and the actual clotting cascade is graphed out on paper and on this machine and as it generates this graphical display, you're able to see what the enzymatic process of clotting is doing, again, similar to what we see in a PT, PTT, INR. Then we're able to see where the clot kinetics kick in. How is the fibrinogen function? How is the fibrin interaction with the clotting process and the platelets and endothelium? Then we're able to see the actual acceleration of the clot as it achieves full strength which is expressed in the total height or the top speed of the actual accelerant. And that gets back to more fibrin interactions and, again, platelet function. And then to kind of sum it all up, then you get the clot breakdown, which, again, you want some clot breakdown, and that's part of what nature has built into the process to make sure that you don't clot everything off, is the fibrinolytic component. So we've got the enzymatic part. We've got the fibrinogen components and interaction with the endothelium and platelets. We've got the platelet strength, and then we have the fibrinolysis. And what's actually fascinating is, is how well this ties in all the components of the hemostatic resuscitation concept and our, um, at least our, our goal, which is to stamp out as much of the coagulopathy as we can with these trauma patients. So you've got this available in your emergency department, in your operating room, as well as your intensive care unit? Yeah, so we've got two machines in our ED stat lab, and every single trauma patient that comes in gets one of these rapid thromboelastography studies done. Then we have multiple ones in our main labs that our ICU can utilize, as well as multiple ones outside of our trauma operating theaters. And you guys aren't even doing PT, PTTs on your trauma patients anymore. You're just relying on this. Yeah, we're, we're stopped. We've just recently stopped the PT, PTT, INR, fibrinogen 
Uh, we've still got some arguments to hold on to the platelet count, which is reasonable, especially since the CBC is probably just as cheap as getting an H&H, &H, so it's kind of all one in the process. But for the most part, getting rid of the and not following and not resuscitating based on the old um, the old pro products. And even more interesting, I think, is the fact that thromboastrogeny is actually detecting some of these newer agents that are, that are out there, these newer anticoagulants that aren't picked up with an INR or a PT, uh, such as the Bigotran and some of the others. These are actually showing up on our, on our rapid tag, and we're actually able to follow those guys with that as opposed to the conventional clotting test. We've been talking to Dr. Brian Cotton, who is an associate professor of surgery at the University of Texas Health Sciences Center, Houston, Texas, and he has been enlightening us on the concept of damage control resuscitation. Dr. Cotton, thanks for joining us, and I do appreciate you joining us on iCritical Care. A pleasure, Jeff. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please don't forget to rate us on iTunes and leave your comments and suggestions for future episodes. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Jeffrey Guy, MD, MSC, MMHC, is editor of the iCritical Care Podcasts. He is an associate professor of surgery and director of the Regional Burn Center and Acute Operative Services at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. At Vanderbilt, he co-directs a medical student immersion course on critical care physiology, a program he helped develop. He also established a sustainment training program for U.S. combat medics. His clinical practice is focused on critical care, pediatric and adult burn surgery, and emergency general surgery. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.